Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee, and I'm a doctoral student in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Western University. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Hale Malatino on their book, Transcare, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020. Dr. Malatino is Assistant Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and core faculty in the Rock Ethics Institute at Pennsylvania State University. Transcare is the recipient of the Publishing Triangle Award for Trans and Gender Variant Literature. Welcome to the New Books Network, Hill. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you with us today and I'm very excited to be in conversation about a book that is um, absolutely life-changing and, and so powerfully evocative um, and one that I know will stay with me for a very long time. Um, before we get into the book, could you begin by telling us um, what brought you to Transcare and could you reflect on your intellectual and affective journey with the book? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. So I'll try not to take too long in answering it. I think that the the starting places were really intimate for me. Um, first of all, before it became an intellectual project, and that's probably evident in the way that the book is written, sort of toggling back and forth between the, the intellectual and affective registers. Um, so it's rooted really in my experience of growing up in a poor white family in Florida um, as an intersex and trans and queer kid recognizing that the intimacies that circulated around me and the kinds of familial relations and communities that I had access to by virtue of being born into the kind of family I was born into couldn't hold that or see that in any ways that I found dignified or even remotely acceptable, I guess is the the simplest way of putting it. Um, And then, you know, thus began the long process of seeking out other sort of similarly disaffected, disenchanted queer and trans folks and building life worlds with them. And the kinds of care that circulate in the practice of building those worlds don't really mirror or mimic the kinds of care that have been 
theorized most often. Oops, I'm sorry. Let me close. Let me start that sentence over and close out this email that just dinged. I didn't realize it was up. Um, so the practice of building those kinds of queer and trans life worlds. So those practices that went into building specifically queer and trans life worlds were not really adequately thought or theorized within the prevailing academic literature and feminist literature on care work, which tended to focus on domestic labor within the heteronormative household. And I encountered that work as a PhD student in philosophy with a focus in feminist philosophy and medical ethics, among other areas. And although a lot of it deeply resonated with me because it gave me a way to name the forms of gendered and sexual exploitation that many of the cis women in my life and also in my family genealogy had experienced, I thought that it didn't really speak much at all to the forms of care labor that circulated within the queer and trans life worlds that had been built by my friends and I and others um, who often in no uncertain ways had been really strongly natally alienated or even thrown out of our natal families. So those were the seeds of the book, I think. And then the, the opportunity to write it actually really only arose because of the material conditions of labor that I have experienced over the last few years. So in my third year at Penn State, I had a semester of course release and I spent it writing trans care. Um, and if it weren't for that semester of course release, I doubt the book would have ever gotten written, honestly. And I think it's important to dignify that at the outset and to call attention to the fact that there are many, many trans voices that we need to hear from, should hear from, that we don't hear from because they don't have the same kinds of material privileges in terms of time to write um, that enabled books like Trans Care to come into the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think your book is an exercise in care. Um, yeah, so thank you for writing writing this book. Um, in the first chapter um, entitled Surviving Trans Antagonism, you write that aftercare is a trans concept and it has the potential to move us beyond the fixation on death, particularly the violent killings of trans women of color. Um, could you expand on this for our listeners today? Yeah, I think Aftercare as a concept has a few different roots, and you hear it come up in in a bunch of very disparate kinds of discourses. One is in the context of BDSM or sexuality more broadly, um, where aftercare is understood as what should follow a, a scene of sexual erotic intimacy, especially ones that are particularly intense. So I had that valence of aftercare in mind as I was, as I was writing. But then aftercare also comes up in the context of discussions of like where children go after school if they're not going home um, or what happens in the context of medical follow-up. So if somebody experiences surgery or some other sort of profound embodied upheaval in the context of, of medical care, then aftercare is needed while folks are, are actively healing. But I thought there's something in this concept of aftercare that links all of these very, very different kinds of iterations, which is it's the kind of care that is necessary in the ongoing sort of profound upheaval of our ways of being in the world. And I think that's something that resonates across 
um, many different kinds of trans experiences. So I started to think about aftercare as a collective or communal practice that is necessarily ongoing that supports folks throughout um, these ongoing sort of transformations and upheavals that gender transition often entails. So, yeah, that was my thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah, you write about care in a wonderfully expansive way. And in, in the first chapter, you imagine the classroom as a space where students are not just taught, but also feel held. And I could not help but wonder if pedagogy centering trans lives and livabilities also offer possibilities of care within the classroom and is a transformative act of care in and of itself. Absolutely. The, the short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the long answer is that thinking about what trans-inclusive pedagogy looks like is it's been a preoccupation of mine for probably about a decade at this point. And earlier, long before Trans Care ever appeared, I wrote an essay entitled Pedagogies of Becoming, which made probably a lot of arguments, but one of the arguments was the necessity for dedicated trans studies courses. Because at the time that I wrote it, the practice was often to give, you know, a trans a week or two to trans issues in an intro to women's and gender studies class or an intro to queer studies class. And that approach was entirely undesirable for so, so many different reasons. But one of them had to do with the fact that in the context of women's gender and sexuality studies pedagogy, to only devote these piecemeal portions of classes to trans archives, trans experiences, trans lives, rather than actively centering them and sort of giving them space, um, giving them courses of their own, meant that the vast majority of folks coming through women's gender and sexuality studies degrees were wholly unprepared to think about what it means to decenter feminist pedagogy in trans-inclusive ways and decenter queer pedagogy in trans-inclusive ways. So then, yeah, I've, I've thought that it's long been a necessity to really center a diversity of trans experiences in feminist and queer classrooms. Um, and that's for so many different reasons. Um, but I think one of them has to do with the fact that politically trans populations, which we see currently right now in the U.S., are just subject to so many disparate forms of of attack and antagonism, legislatively and otherwise. And the movements that exist that one would expect to respond to those attacks, um, feminist and queer movements, feminist and queer collectives, are oftentimes underprepared to do so because of this lack of of trans-centered pedagogy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In the second chapter of your book entitled Beyond Burnout, you write that trans advocacy and organizing often blur boundaries between caregiver and recipient of care. You write, and I quote, and your book is endlessly quotable, um, trans collectives and communities are deeply interwoven and interdependent, enmeshed in a way that makes distinguishing between the roles of carer and recipient difficult. They're rotating, interchangeable, and reciprocal. 
Unquote. And you write that such interdependent care networks render the language of compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma challenging. And it also challenges the hierarchy of traumatization. Um, how do such forms of deliberate interdependent mutual forms of care offer us the possibility of thinking beyond burnout um, and individualized language of burnout associated with it? Yeah, so I'm going to take a, a circuitous route around this question by way of response, because actually my thinking about burnout has shifted over the course of the, the last year and a half, two years since I wrote the book. And in large part, that's because I did some research into the history of the concept of burnout. And I discovered that the way that we tend to use burnout in this contemporary moment um, which is highly individuated, which is, I think, embedded in like liberal and neoliberal understandings of subjectivity as sovereign, profoundly sort of not interdependent, was actually not the way that burnout was used initially. So the concept was coined by a physician who was instrumental in starting the free clinic movement in the United States. And that movement began in two sites, really, in the U.S. One was the, the Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco in the late 1960s, and the other was the East Village of New York City in the late 1960s and early 70s. And these were both countercultural sites in the U.S., so they were like hippie enclaves, in a way. Um, I, I don't think that would be an overdetermined way to summarize them, which meant <laughs> that, that folks that were in these spaces were dealing with some medical issues that were just heavily stigmatized if they were to go to conventional medical industrial sites or just to the hospital or, you know, their typical physician. And some of this had to do with the, uh, with higher rates of STIs and also with incidences of drug use that went awry. So like bad trips in particular, and so the free clinics developed to provide treatment to folks who would be heavily stigmatized in more normative medical settings, and also out of a realization that the way that more normative medical settings tended to deal with sexually transmitted diseases and also with drug use was wholly inadequate. So... Okay, so I said it was going to be a long way around, and it is a long way around. So, so this, um, the physician who coined the concept, the term burnout, was referring to a phenomenon that he saw impacting people who volunteered at the earliest free clinics in the United States who were members of the, the counterculture themselves. So they were folks who often had relatively unstable living arrangements, didn't have sort of reliable employment often went through periods of being unhoused, sometimes by choice, sometimes not, who were profoundly alienated from mainstream US culture for various reasons and had opted out of it for various reasons, some of which had to do with gender and sexuality, surely, but not exclusively. And these were the folks that were volunteering to provide medical care to other members of, of this counterculture. And it was in the context of doing that work that he realized there was this phenomenon of of exhaustion and disassociation that was occurring. And he called that burnout over the course of the, the intervening decades between the late 1960s, early 1970s. And now burnout became like 
corporatized and used in the context of psychological self-help literature and also used primarily to refer to folks that were in the conventional quote-unquote caring professions. So nurses, teachers, um, these are also all, the caring professions are also heavily feminized professions, of course. And that was where we saw the language of compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma introduced. And we saw burnout reconceived as something that caring professionals experienced because the clients that they worked with were so profoundly demanding and like insensitive to the the limited capacities of caring professionals. But that's not how the concept had started out. And I actually think that when thinking about somebody like Rupert Raj, who I talk about in the context of writing about burnout and trans care, what he's experiencing is very, very similar to what the earliest volunteers in free clinics were experiencing because they were living in conditions of multiple marginalization themselves. And then they were also attempting to be of service to folks that were in similar, um, in similar existential circumstances. So yeah, I guess that's a long way of saying maybe burnout is the right word if we can reclaim this more original sense of how it was used and rescue it from like corporatized self-help literature. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in Beyond Burnout, you also mention how um, T. Fleischman, who writes about doing an art project with a friend in Tennessee, gathered all their pills and, and AIDS medication in front of a giant mirror and, and spelled out the word post-scarcity in bold letters. And they did this in a moment of estrogen short- shortage throughout the United States um, when the price of AIDS-related medication was um, raised from $13 a pill to, to $750. Um, you write and I quote, a post-scarcity vision guides this ongoing moment where increasingly folks are sharing hormones, subsidizing each other's medical care, crowdsourcing money for rent, for transition, for bail. In situations of ever-tightening austerity, dispossession, and deprivation, we cultivate methods of collective survival that aren't just guided by an imaginary abundance, but bring such abundance to bear in, in the present, unquote. Could you reflect on how care in the everyday and also care as an activist praxis um, challenge capitalism and neoliberal myth-making um, strategies such as those associated with scarcity? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most pernicious lessons that we, that many of us at least learn at a young age, um, via neoliberal capitalism, racial capitalism, is that we should hoard resources. <laughs> I mean, we saw this, like, we see this in so many iterations, but we saw it in the early pandemic. We, when we think about how generational wealth um, operates, that is, that is all about hoarding. And I think it's imperative to unlearn the practice of hoarding and the way that it's underwritten by a, both an intense investment in hyper-individualism and a profound fear that there are not enough resources to go around and that there is no possibility of interdependency or assistance coming from elsewhere. Um, and that's really hard to unlearn because it's been instilled for many of us from day one. And the only way that we can think about what it means to to be secure and to have a sense of a future. But it's absolutely imperative to unlearn that. And also as part of that unlearning to commit to the real material redistribution of resources and to do so in ways that are 
not just redistributing resources to folks who were closest with, which is, I think, something that tends to happen even in the context of like experiments in collective or communal living, where there might be a redistribution of resources, but that only goes, that only extends to the folks with whom one is already intimate. So I think it's yeah imperative to to unlearn those myths, and it's the only way that we're going to see any real material structural change happen, and the only way to actually make mutual aid practices or practices of care that are not localized um, or cohere sort of specifically around domestic and kinship arrangements workable in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. There are no two ways about it. Um, you write very powerfully about ethos and care. Um, in Trans and Care, and you state that practices of care constitute a part of an emergent ethos. Um, could you expand on this for our audience? Yeah, sure. The So the idea of ethos that I'm working with there is grounded in this idea that an ethics should come from practice and not the other way around. So we shouldn't be applying ethical principles to specific practices and then attempting to reform those practices in line with these transcendent ethical principles, but instead to think about situations in which folks find themselves that are ever mutating and transforming and demanding sort of supple and different kinds of care practices that also might look different from person to person, community to community, collective to collective, and then developing an ethics from that set of sort of ongoing, iterative, revised practices that are undertaken in the in the name of attempting to provide better care for multiply marginalized folks that is actually responsive to their needs and desires and not just an application of pre-existing ethical principles onto, you know, a set of behaviors or practices. Yeah. In Transcend Care, you also write that care is not quantifiable and cannot be calculated within a logic of exchange because um, excess accompanies care in trans and queer kinship. Um, what kind of communities do you uh, envision emerging when we allow ourselves to be comfortable with this excess? And what practices are necessary to, to bring such communities into being, uh, which do not view um, excess as a source of conflict? I think that this is a tricky part of the book for me to talk about because I think that some of my thinking around this is not as fleshed out as, as it could have been. And I, I think it still isn't. Um, but what I was attempting to get at there is this idea that very often we think about care in the context of exchange and we think about it almost like billable hours. And I'm using we generally here. I'm, I'm sure that people, some people listening to this are like, that's not the way I think about care. And that's great. Um, but I think that it's it's a sort of lesson that even feminist discourses on care equity take part of, where it's about the hours one puts in in the context of domestic labor and the context of child rearing. And that the goal is for these hours to be equal. And this is often imagined in the context of a heteronormative partnership where cis men are doing care work that is equal in amount and intensity to the care work that cis women are doing in the context of these domestic arrangements. And I mean, I think that's fine, but I also think that that's really inattentive to questions of capacity and fluctuating capacity. Um, I also think it's an intensively potentially ableist understanding of, of care. 
um, in large part because of its inattention to questions of capacity. And that means that the idea of exchange is, is ours or is a particular kind of like, you know, equal distribution of shit work is one way to put it is, is, um, is a limited way of understanding the, the just distribution of care labor. And I think an ongoing attention to people's fluctuating capacities in relationship to everything else that is going on in their lives and how many spoons they do or don't have on a given day is, is imperative. And we don't get there through more conventional understandings of, of exchange or equity. Yeah. Yeah. You write about trans archives in a way that is also deeply moving and, and very comforting in many ways. Um, you invite us to stay with the messiness of trans archives, the joy of finding everyday trans folks and their narratives in, in bits and pieces, in anonymous letters, and, and you think aloud about the complexities of language and representation. Um, and this is the part that is, that is so prof- uh, profound, and, and I quote, uh, how to do justice to these lives, how to write about them on behalf of them, with them, for them, in memoriam of them. The language I use in an attempt to render them never never seems to suffice, unquote. Um, what does it mean to sit with this messiness and realization of the inadequacy of language and to still honor trans lives who are marginalized, even in their death, and whose words and stories, as you write, are rendered vulnerable? Um, unreliable and and hence easily dismissed. So I think the way of honoring these these personages or traces of lives in archives works, can operate in a lot of ways, but I think it has to hinge on the granting of opacity to them. I think there's an enormously... I want to use I want to use the phrase imperializing assumption, <laughs> so I'm going to use it. Um, like this imperializing assumption that one can piece together an authoritative narrative or account of lives that only exist um, by a bare trace or secondary mention in currently existing archives, and oftentimes trans folks are found in archives in those ways. So. The practice of what Sadia Hartman calls critical fabulation um, is necessary to even begin to reconstruct or make some sense out of these lives, but it also has to be predicated on an acknowledgement of the fact that there is always an element of fabulation involved, inevitably, and that these subjects in the historical archive, or the traces of these subjects in the historical archive, are in many ways just profoundly unknowable. But there's also an ethics to dignifying that unknowability in the same way that there's an ethics to dignifying the opacity and unknowability of others that we encounter on a day-to-day basis that are currently living. Um, So I think that approaching trans archives or archives of trans lives with this commitment to a kind of epistemological humility and and the the granting of opacity to these to these subjects is is just necessary because to sort of go with the 
with the logic of conventional historiography is is really inadequate because it's we're not going to be able to piece together an authoritative account of these lives in large part because of the material conditions that these lives were constrained by um and the way that they don't show up in historical records and the robust way that like the great men of history do but yeah but maybe that's i guess what i'm saying is that is is good <laughs> and, and the idea that we could ever have full, complete knowledge of any other human being is actually, uh, in some ways, I think, profoundly violent. Absolutely, yeah. I, it, this is so beautifully, so powerfully put. And I, I like what you uh, say about dignifying unknowability, and, and that requires into, uh, epistemological humility. Yeah, absolutely. Um your book also lets us into the complex world of care within and against the medical industrial complex. Um, trans folks, you write, have increasingly turned to each other for care in the context of the medical refusal of care. Um, could you elaborate on this for our listeners? Absolutely. So there's a long history. Um, I actually want to say that in large part, the history of recognizably trans-organizing, at least in the U.S. over the last 50 or 60 years, has been organizing in resistance to the, the medical industrial complex. That's not the, the only kind of organizing that's happened, but it's certainly one of the, the central forms of sort of legibly trans-organizing. And what this means is that from the moment that trans-medical diagnosis and treatment protocol consolidated in the US in the the late 50s, early 60s, it's been met with wave upon wave of trans resistance that has called out the logic of gatekeeping that's informed access to medical procedures of transition or transition-related technologies, and that's argued for more democratized access, that's argued for bodily autonomy, that's argued for... um, for economic accessibility to medical transition. And that's all over the archives of trans organizing that exist. Um, again, specifically in the US, because those are the archives that I've been most attuned to and worked with. Um, so that that means largely that as part of this, this collective organizing and resistance to the limitations of how the medical industry has treated trans subjects. Trans subjects have also been doing a kind of grassroots organizing that's been about information sharing around technologies of transition, what doctors are better than others, what doctors are totally to be avoided, um, how to talk to therapists in order to get letters to green light surgical procedures, um, what strategic lies you might need to tell them, et cetera. So there's this long history of of trans folks just knowledge sharing around medical access that is deeply cognizant of the normative investments of the medical industry historically, and also very keen to provide workarounds that enable a a greater number and a, a more diverse trans demographic to access medical procedures that have been really rigorously gatekept along the lines of, of sexuality um, as well as race and, and class. Right. Um, you're almost uh, nearing the end of this episode, but before we let you go, um, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? 
Sure, I'd love to. There are a few different things that have either just been released or are about to come out. And one is the T4T or Trans for Trans special issue of Trans Studies Quarterly that Cameron Awkward Rich and I co-edited. That was just released. I think it just went up this past weekend. And that's all on investigating the complexities of trans for trans erotics, intimacies, collectivities, um, and the limits of strategic trans separatisms. So that's just out. And my next book, which is called Side Affects, and the subtitle is On Being Trans and Feeling Bad, is coming out in mid-April. Um, so that book's available to pre-order. And that book is, I mean, the subtitle probably says it best. It's about being trans and feeling bad. And it's organized around a set of bad feelings that each get a chapter. And those feelings are rage, envy, fatigue, numbness, and burnout, which I already wrote a little bit about in trans care. And this has a much longer meditation on burnout. Um, And then the closing chapter of that book is thinking about trans healing practices and their oftentimes their investment in sort of new age spiritualities that are predicated on a kind of white plasticity. So that sounds like a lot, but it's fleshed out in the last chapter of the the forthcoming book. So yeah, that's, that's what's next. And then I continue to do work on, on imagining and enacting care ethics otherwise. So I have a few different projects, a special issue that I'm co-editing with my colleague, Sarah Clark Miller and Amy McKiernan that is in the works and then a conference and hopefully an edited volume coming out of that work too. So that's what's up currently. That's, that's amazing. And I, and I can't wait to read your, your new book, which is coming out this year. And hopefully uh, we can have you back on NBN and, and talk to you about that book as well. Um, thank you so much, Hale, uh, for this conversation. It has given me so much to think about um, and also made me think about the, the transnational conversations that we can also have with your book um, in, in focus. Uh, thank you so much um, thank for you this so book much. and for your scholarship. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much.